0: You know, you, you build up and get everything ready and planned for the day, but I'll be honest, you never really know if anybody's going to show up, so this is really cool that you guys are here right now, so <laughs> thanks for showing up tonight. Hey, um, I want to give you a, a few details here as we get started, just uh, kind of the timeline of everything and some specifics. So right now, tonight starts our soft launch. And uh, we're mostly folks from Grace Church, although we got some other visitors with us, and we're really glad that you're here. Um, but we're saying these first eight weeks, uh, we're gathering together, and we're a little bit scaled down, which I actually really like that, um, because it reminds us of why we're here. We're here planning this campus, doing this, um, not because we want to be comfortable, right? Right? We're here um, not because, you know, we want to just kind of do our own thing. That's not why we're here. We're not here because uh, we want to have the latest and greatest technology. None of that's the reason that we're here. We're here, we're doing this to make disciples, right? Like that's why we're stepping out. That's why we're, we're doing hard things and taking a risk and doing this. And we can do that with some uh, really cool stuff and lots of technology and, and comforts and things like that, or we can do it with very little stuff. And I want to say this, neither way is better, right? They're just different, but neither way is better than the other. And so we're scaled down at first, but in March we're going to receive some additional stuff. We're going to receive, that's the technical term I use for it, stuff, we're going to receive some, uh, some stuff that we purchased to help do services here uh, and classes here in a way that we feel like will help us um, make people feel welcomed and loved and understand the truth of the gospel. And so I'm excited to get our stuff. It's good stuff. We're going to enjoy our stuff. We spent some money on our stuff, right? But this stuff isn't what's going to help people come to know Jesus. It's just stuff. We hope it'll help, but it's not what's going to bring people to know Jesus, the things that are going to bring people to know Jesus are actually really basic. It's this, right? Bible. And it's this. You can do church when you got a Bible and you got the church. You got people, right? And so from day one of our lunch tonight, we got the essentials. We got what we need in order to do church. That's what's most important and essential, which is a huge answer to prayer. I mean, the fact that we're at where we're at right now, uh, God has been, has provided in incredible ways. I, I, sh- I should write it all down because it's pretty amazing, and many of your stories and how God has, has drawn you here, is, it's just beautiful. But So we're scaled down at first, but our stuff is coming. And so there's a date that uh, I want to have you put on your calendars. It's March 7th. It's a month from tonight, four weeks from tonight, and it's a Saturday. And what we're going to do is have a company called Portable Church come in. Uh, We were actually over there uh, yesterday and picked up a bunch of our kids' stuff, which is down there. Um, But they're coming in, and they're going to deliver the rest of our stuff. And then what they're going to do is train us. And so on that Saturday, it's going to be a busy day. So this is a big ask, okay? I want to make sure that you're aware of this. And I know that, that we're asking a lot here. But on that Saturday, March 7th, at 8 o'clock, they're going to come and deliver our, our, the stuff. And then they're going to take us through a training. And then we're going to do a full setup on all this stuff and a full teardown on all this stuff. And they're going to be with us along the way, okay? And then afterward, we've got a few hours off. And then afterwards, we come back and we do it again for real. We set up for services, we do our services, we tear down. They're with us all along the way. So March 7th is a really big day for us. We'll send out uh, to the launch team, we'll send out uh, a schedule that's a little bit more detailed so not everybody has to be here the whole time. But I would love for you to get that on your calendars um, now as soon as possible. That would be great. So that's coming March 7th. And then we have four weeks to kind of iron out any wrinkles as we have all of the stuff that we're going to use to do services. Okay? And then on Easter, we have our hard launch. And this is the date that we're inviting guests. This is the date maybe we put the sign out front, right? Like right now, we're kind of under the radar a little bit. We don't have a lot of signage. We've not promoted or anything like that. But Easter is the date that we're looking towards where we'll begin inviting guests. And so we've got eight weeks to get ready. Right now, we're not ready. we got little wrinkles. we got little things that we're ironing out, figuring out. This, by the way, Grace Church has never done this before. It's kind of cool. We're pioneers We've never done a campus that's mobile like this in a rented facility, and so we're just kind of figuring it out as we go, and working things out and doing things different ways that don't work. So Easter, by that point, hopefully we'll be all ready, and we'll all be on the same page in terms of, like, why are we doing this, how are we doing this, and what ways are we doing this. Make sense? So that's what we're going to do for the next eight weeks leading up to to Easter. I want to say this. It's going to be a ride. Like, it's going to be an adventure. This is going to be fun. And there's also going to be hard times. Like there'll be times that uh, we've faced some bumps in the road. There'll be times when we have some challenges that we'll face. There'll be things that we do that don't really work very well. And we'll apologize. And then we'll do them better the next time. And you need to be aware of that. And you need to be ready for that. There's going to be hard stuff that God is going to take us through. But the cool thing is, he's going to be with us all along the way. And we get to do this together. And then there's going to be, like, mountaintop times, too. I believe with all of my heart that God will use us in many people's lives as he transforms them and introduces them to his son. And and futures will be changed forever. And families will be changed forever. And we're going to have a chance to be a part of that. One thing that we say around here is that the church isn't for the church. Right? Right? The church, the church isn't for the church. We're really not here. Uh, this is going to sound shocking at first, but just hear me out. We're really not here to just love each other. Now, we are here, and so we do love each other, and we care about each other, and we serve each other, and we're, we're in each other's lives. But that's not the re- really the reason that the church is here. The church isn't just here for each other and become this little tight community. That's not why the church is here. The church isn't for the church. The church is for the world. We're here to bless the world. We're here to make an impact on the world. And there's lots of different ways that we can do that, right? By giving, by by serving, by teaching, by mentoring, by helping other people. But the best possible way that we can bless the world is how? It's introducing them to Jesus, right? And it's inviting them into a relationship with him. And that's why we're here. That's why Jesus has left us here, to bless the world and to make disciples. And as long as I have air in my lungs, breath in my lungs, that's what I I will lead us to do as your campus pastor. And if I get distracted from that, I give you permission to stone me, okay? Actually, just talk to me first. And if I ignore you, then you can stone me, all right? So um, that's a little bit about our timeline. I want to tell you a little bit about the series that we're starting tonight. It's called Epicenter. Do you know what the epicenter is? Epicenter, I wrote a definition. Actually, I looked up a definition. Here's what it is The epicenter is the true center of a disturbance from which the shock waves of an earthquake apparently radiate. I'll say it again. The epicenter is the true center of a disturbance from which the shock waves of an earthquake apparently radiate. It's like the center point of an earthquake. It's the center of a disturbance that sends shockwaves out in every direction possible. And the bigger the disturbance, the vaster the effect of the shockwaves. So why are we calling this series Epicenter? Well, in in many of the same ways, the gospel is like the epicenter of our lives. How? Well, first it's a disturbance. I love thinking of it that way. The gospel is a disturbance in the core of who we are. The truth of the good news of the gospel has has disturbed and disrupted many of us. In fact, disturbed and disrupted maybe is not strong enough of a term. The gospel has violently destroyed life as we knew it. Amen? Anybody else experience that? Yeah. It's violently destroyed life as we knew it. And second, it sends shockwaves out in every direction, affecting every part of our lives. Let me say that again. The gospel affects everything every part of our lives, every single part. It doesn't just affect the sliver of our lives. It's not like, it's not like a gun. You shoot a gun, and it has an effect that way, and it has a kickback, right? It has an effect coming back this way. That's not what it's like. It's not like the gospel affects my language. Because of the gospel, because of the good news about Jesus, now I don't cuss anymore, or now I cuss less than I used to, Right? That's not what it's like. It's not just one thing, but the gospel affects every part of my life. So now I'm careful with my words, and I value honesty, I value integrity, and I live dependently on God, and I want to root out pride in my life and selfishness in my life, and I want to give generously to other people, and I want to serve people, etc, etc, etc. The gospel is like the epicenter. It's a disturbance that affects every single part of our lives. And you might be sitting here tonight thinking, I've not experienced that. Like, I, I, I've not experienced the, the, the gospel in that sort of po- that powerful way that you're describing. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here tonight. And I would encourage you to come talk to me or come talk to somebody else and be honest. There's no shame in that. Be honest with where you're at and ask somebody for help in explaining to you the power of the gospel and how it's transforming them. And I would encourage you to go to the Lord and be honest with him as well. The gospel is the epicenter and the focal point is the cross. It's a violent disturbance that sends shockwaves through every part of me. It affects every single part of who I am. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. And the next eight weeks leading up to Easter and our hard launch, we're going to look at eight different ways that the gospel, the, the shockwaves of this disturbance of the gospel affect how we live as Christ followers right here and right now and how we do church at Grace Church. So we're going to spend some time digging into things like our values, right, that are distinct to us at Grace Church, our purpose, and it's going to lead us to some big picture goals at the end that are going to be for us as a campus, all right, we're all in this together, us as the barbering campus, but also can be applied very individually and very personally in my life today. See, the truth is we do some things differently here, all right, like, it's probably not a surprise to you. We do some things a little bit differently at Grace Church. And the fact that you're here probably means you appreciate some of those things. But maybe you've not spent much time thinking about why. Like, why do we do the things that we do? And why do we not do some of the things that we don't do? In this series, I think we'll be able to answer some of those questions why. And we'll do it, of course, by opening up the scriptures. Make sense? So that's this epicenter series. So I want to spend the rest of our time tonight talking about what our first value is here at Grace Church, and this is a value that really is foundational to every other value that we have and really everything that we do at Grace Church. So we're going to throw it on the screen, and I would love for you to say it together with me, okay? Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. We live to make Jesus make sense. It's kind of catchy, right? Let's do it again. Ready? We live to make Jesus make sense. We are preoccupied with making any necessary sacrifice to make the story of Jesus clear and accessible to anyone seeking after him. Guys, this is absolutely ingrained, ingrained in who we are. And I think it's who. God tells us to be in the Bible, he tells followers of Jesus to be in the Bible. You know, there's so much confusion about who Jesus is in this world. Sometimes, sometimes we can think because we live here, because we live in the United States, like everybody must understand who Jesus is. Everybody must have an accurate view of who he is. They don't. They don't. Think of your own life and the confusion that you had in your own life before you came to know Jesus. This week I was... Um, on the internet, and I was, I was trying to find some of those, like, man-on-the-street videos of uh, guys, people walking up to people and, and saying, who is Jesus? And so I found some of these on YouTube, and some of the responses are uh, really, really interesting. So it started off kind of funny. Um, who is Jesus? One guy says, uh, he's a white guy with a beard. Like, okay. Another guy said, he's a white guy. Looked like he's from the 60s. I don't know why everybody thinks Jesus was a white guy, but anyway. Uh, he did some carpentry, another guy said. Some girl said, he just seemed really chill. Like, I think he even smoked some pot. So I like Jesus a lot. That one made me chuckle. Another guy said, oh, you mean Jesus? He's my friend from Puerto Rico. And then then they start, so they start off kind of funny, but then very quickly it becomes kind of heartbreaking. One person said, there's definitely something special about Jesus, but it's the same things that are special about each of us. Another guy said, he was a good guy with good morals and beliefs and possibly had some sort of special gift. Another guy said, he was some sort of Gandhi-like character. Another person said, he had some sort of superpower, but I don't know. Another person said, he inspired a lot of people, so that's cool to me. Another person said, he's a make-believe story that got blown out of proportion. Another person said, a story made up by someone. He could have been a real person with something special, but he's not like the stories say he is. Someone else said, I don't really believe in him, like he never existed. Someone else said, he's made up. Something in people's imagination that they use to comfort themselves. Last guy said, he's part of the biggest con ever. There's a lot of confusion out there about who is Jesus. I remember that confusion in my own life. I don't know if you think back and you can remember what life was like before you encountered Jesus. But I had tons of confusion about him. Who is he? I remember wondering, like, is he real? Do I believe that? Do I believe that he's real? And if he is, like, what role does he have in my life, you know? Do, do I believe that he's God believe that he existed? Do I believe that he's God? I feared a lot that he was an angry judge for me. Like I always felt guilty with everything that I did, like I was disappointing him or hurting him in some way. Do you remember what it was like, the confusion that you felt in your own life of who is Jesus? Guys, this is, I love that this is our first value at Grace Church. We live to make Jesus make sense. But I want to say this too, we can do a lot of damage in people's lives. Uh, if we're not careful in how we make Jesus make sense. You know what I'm saying by that? How can we do damage in people's lives if we're not careful with how we make Jesus make sense? Well, I can do some damage if I don't really know who Jesus is myself. And I pull you aside and I explain him to you, but I'm really ignorant of who he is. And I just make him out to be someone I want him to be. And instead of giving you truth and helping Jesus, an accurate view of Jesus makes sense. I'm actually telling you lies, and I'm adding to the confusion. We can't do that. By the way, as an aside, I mean, the best way to get to know Jesus, like actually know who he is, it's so simple. We just read in here, simple and accessible. Again, if you don't have a Bible, take one on your way out. We read, and we spend time talking to him. It's called prayer, but you also listen to him, which is sometimes harder for us to do. So we can hurt people by trying to make Jesus make sense. If we don't have an accurate view of Jesus, we could also hurt people if we do it in ugly ways. You ever experienced this? You ever done this? You're trying to explain G- Jesus to somebody and you do it in some, some ugly sort of way? Like maybe, maybe you do it with arrogance in your heart. Well, let me tell you what I know. I know you're a sinner, and I know you're going to hell unless you listen to what I'm about to say. Come on. Who's going to want to listen to that? I know that, that I can hurt somebody if I try to share Jesus to them, with them in anger. I am so frustrated with this world. Why is this world such a bad place? People frustrate me to death. Let me tell you about Jesus. He will change your life. He will make you better. What about if we do it with fear? I, I, I'm just timid. I'm not sure if I should do it or not. And what if, what if people have questions for me that I don't know how to answer? We could hurt people by sharing Christ with them with defensiveness to win an argument. I answered every question they had and then I asked them some questions and they didn't know the answers. I won! No, you didn't. No, you didn't. There's a lot of wrong ways to do this. I love that Like our foundational value is we live to make Jesus make sense. We will sacrifice to make Jesus make sense to other people, but we have to be careful in the ways that we do it. So there's a lot of wrong ways that we can do that. But there's also some really good right ways to do it. How do we help Jesus make sense? Well, I want to read you something, and it's really challenged my heart this week, and I think it really drives—this is a, a passage that really drives this first value for us from the scriptures. So if you have a Bible, I would love for you to open, or on your phone, or whatever, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're also going to throw it on the screen, if you prefer that, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five. Paul writes this uh, this to this letter, this epistle to the church in Corinth. So he actually spent a ton of time with them. Probably of all the churches in the New Testament, this is the one he was closest with. And I love this passage because we get a glimpse into Paul's heart here and what drove him as he followed Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. What drove his ministry? What drove Paul's ministry? And I think that we should be driven, we should strive to be driven in the same sort of way. So I want you to check it out. It's kind of a long passage, but I want to read the whole thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Here's what it says. Paul's writing. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. I mean, this is the core of the gospel. So I'll tell you when I read that, what absolutely screams at me from the text, like the first thing that just screams at a guy like me who struggles with selfishness, I don't know if any of you feel this way, but who struggles with selfishness and battles it every single day, first thing that sticks out to me, because of the violent disturbance of the gospel in my life, in our lives, Christ's love compels us. That's the first thing that sticks out to me. Because of the gospel, the violent disturbance in my life, Christ's love compels us. That word compels, I don't know what it says in your Bible. In the NIV, it's translated as compels. That word compels is a really interesting word. What it means is to cause to do by overwhelming pressure. To cause to do by overwhelming pressure. Paul felt this overwhelming pressure from God because of God's love, another translation, maybe even a better translation into the English, uh, instead of com- compels, use the words control. Christ's love controls us or compresses us. And when I think of that, it actually makes me think of Plato, because all good theology comes from Plato, right? I mean, right. When you have Plato, like you can take Plato and you can make it into anything that you want. Imagine a ball like this. And if you take a ball and you hold it in your hand just like this, and you begin to compress, you begin to apply pressure, something happens to it. It begins to move out from the center. Right? You apply pressure and it moves outward. That's what Plato does. Start off as a ball easier to do without a mic in your hand. Start off as a ball, like you and I are a ball. And Christ's love compresses us. And it moves us outside of ourselves. See, it's the same sort of thing with Plato as Christ's love. The power, the pressure of his love, of the gospel, pushes us beyond ourselves. It pushes us out beyond ourselves to do and to be something else. That's what it does. But what does his love compel us toward? It compels us toward something outside of ourselves. What, it, what does it compel us toward? Well, it compels us to no longer live for ourselves. Christ loves, it pressures, it pushes me out, so it's no longer about me. And I don't know what, like, what feelings you feel when I say that. Like, it's no, it's no longer about me. It's no longer me living for myself. But immediately when I think of that, two feelings come to mind. The first one is a little bit of fear. If, if I'm honest, not living for myself creates a little bit of fear inside of me. Because it could be scary. It could be very scary not to live for myself. If, if I'm not looking out for me, who will? Right? If, if I'm not looking out for my wants, for my needs, how can I be sure that somebody else is going to look out? Well, hey, we can't forget what we're talking about here. We're talking about Christ's love. I'm loved by him. He died for me. He's patiently changing me. He's my provider. He's my protector. He's my counselor. He's my deliverer. It's a little scary to put my fate and my needs in the hands of somebody else, but that's exactly what Christianity is all about. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about me providing for myself. Now I live for the one who saved me. I live for the one who died and was raised by the power of God, was raised for me. When I think about that, I have the second feeling. There's this overwhelming feeling, this overwhelming sense of relief. It is so liberating, so liberating to not be consumed by myself. You ever feel that? It's freedom to not be consumed by me. It's a lot of work to think that everything depends on me. If I don't take care of it, it's not going to happen. That's stressful. That is a ton of weight on our shoulders, like literally a ton of weight on our shoulders. But I don't live for myself anymore. I get to put myself on the back burner, and I get to focus elsewhere on Jesus, and that's liberating Christ's love compels us to no longer live for ourselves. Just stop and think about the love that the Lord has for you. Like, I don't know how often you do this. This should be—I like, think in my own life—this should be a very regular habit of mine. Just stop and think about how much He loves you. He knows everything about you, like warts and all every rotten thing that you've ever done and he still wants nothing more than to be with you and to grow you and even use you in the lives of other people. In a passage uh, one, uh, I love this passage. It's talking it's in the Old Testament, it's talking about Israel specifically, but I think can very easily, I think it's a prophetic passage that can very easily be applied to us as the church in the New Testament. This is what it says, talking about God. It's in Zephaniah 3:17. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he'll no longer rebuke you, but rejoice over you with singing. You love that thought? Like you delight the Lord. I used to think of God as my angry judge. He delights over us. He he rejoices over us with singing. He he knows everything our deepest, darkest secrets, everything about us, and he still loves us in a way that is like beyond our comprehension, beyond our understanding. Christ's love compels us, and it frees us to not live for ourselves any longer, but instead to live for him. So what does it look like in our lives? What does it look like for us to live for him? Well, it means that we see the world, and we see the people the way that he sees them. Look back at 2 Corinthians 5. Look, Look back at verse 14. Reminds me again of Plato. I tried to do this in the last service and I failed royally, so I'm just gonna explain it to you, okay? Imagine that same clump of Plato. And instead of God just applying pressure and like randomly creating something else, imagine him applying pressure and taking us from looking like this, a big globa of goo, to something completely different and human, making us brand new, and having, going from having a perspective like this to having a perspective like this. I see things differently now. I am a new creation in him. I'm no longer what I was. Now I'm like him, and I see people like he does. See, as Christ's love shapes us, it makes us into something different. His love makes us into a new creation, and then we begin to see people differently. We begin to see people the way that he sees people. He makes me different, so I see people differently. I, 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 I don't see people the way that I used to, like in my own life. I'm embarrassed to say this, but I will. I, I used to um, not like people that were different than me. Like, one of the things we've been praying for with this campus is diversity and, you know, uh, the the beauty of seeing uh, a bunch of different people get together in unity, do something incredible for the Lord. I love that. But I didn't used to love that. I used to love people that were like me. And I don't mean, like, racially. Like, I um, never—that was never an issue for me. But interests. I was a sports guy. Like, sports was my God. And so when I was younger— If you didn't like sports or you weren't good with sports, we were not friends. If you you did, we're cool, we're tight. But if you didn't, we weren't friends. And at worst, I didn't like you. At best, I didn't care about you. I'm embarrassed to admit that, but that's very much how I was. But after I encountered Jesus, something changed in me. And I began to see people that were different than me and... I began to see people that were like me the same, really. Like, I still like them, right? But then I began to see people that were different than me, and I could equally appreciate and love those people for who they are. I could see them differently. I could care about them. I could value those differences because Christ's love has made me a new creation, and he's changing me, and he continues to change me even today. So no longer do I see people in just worldly ways. No longer do I see people in just physical ways. But God makes me a new creation. I see, I try to see people through, their, through his eyes. How do you see people? I Think about your own heart. How do you see people that are different than you? How do you respond to them? Do you get frustrated with those differences? Do you look at how they're different and look at the way that you do things and think my way is the best and your way is wrong? Do you focus on people's shortcomings? Do we see people in worldly ways? Or are we seeing people as a new creation and through the eyes of Jesus? One of the things that we talk about, uh, we've talked about over this last month, in fact, Emily brought it up in our staff meetings. We said we got to be really careful as we move forward with the Barberton campus. We have to be really careful to never forget where we've come from, right? That is very, very easy to do. Especially when you start to get your stuff together a little bit, you know? Like, life gets to be a little bit easier. I got my stuff together. It's very, very easy to forget where we've been. I think as parents, it's really easy to do that, right? Like, we look at our kids, and we forget what we were like when we were kids. Here's a fun exercise. Think about yourself at some of your most disgusting, unattractive, uninviting, judgmental, bad decision-making times. It's a fun exercise. Think about yourself during those times. Think about how ugly you have been in the past. Think about how like absolutely twisted your logic has been. And then think about how God saw you in those times. Think about how he responded to you. Think about his patience with you. His love for you in spite of what you were doing, in spite of your actions, in spite of yourself. Guys, when we're controlled by Christ's love, he makes us respond differently to the world around us. His love is making us into something new. And there's a total restructuring of my life that changes how I think, how I feel, how I act. It's huge. And this new us sees people differently. We remember what we were like. We remember what we were forgiven from. And it drives us to see other people the way that God sees them. And that's with love. And it drives us to love other people the way that Jesus loves other people. And it drives us to actually see and care about people's souls and eternity and not just be annoyed by what they're dealing with in the moment. It drives us to want them to experience the transforming power of the gospel this violent disruption, disturbance that we've experienced. See, we've been reconciled. Look back at the passage, look at verse 17. See, we've gotten the chance to be reconciled to the holy, righteous, all-powerful, just, all-knowing creator and sustainer and judge of everything that is. That's who God is. He is all of those things. And guess what? We are not, right? Back in Isaiah, it says that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Excuse the metaphor, but it's the biblical metaphor. That word filthy rags, it literally means... Uh, uh, menstrual rags, used menstrual rags. Our righteousness compared to God's righteousness is disgusting. It's disgusting. And yet he loves us, and he's made a way for us to be reconciled, and that's through the cross. Reconciliation, what it means is, is to return to favor with somebody else, to return in favor with somebody else. So to go from being an enemy To being a friend. That's what reconciliation means. We're no longer his enemies, but we're his friend. He cares for you that way. That's how God sees you. Not as an enemy anymore. But because we've been reconciled by the cross, we're now his friend. And guess what? He also cares for your annoying family member that same way. And he also cares for your mean neighbor that same exact way. And he also cares for that kid that picks a fight or picks on your little daughter that same exact way. He also cares for your ex-spouse who betrayed you that same exact way. God reconciled us and he leaves us on earth with a mission to help others be reconciled to him as well. Since I've been reconciled, I get to be a reconciler. Since I've been reconciled, I get a chance to be a reconciler in other people's lives. Here's a secret. Don't tell anybody. Ready? It's a secret. That's why we're planting this campus. Shh, don't. Don't tell. But that's why we're doing this. We want to help other people be reconciled to God. We are agents of reconciliation. That's what it says. We're his ambassadors. We're his representatives. We represent the God of the universe here on earth. Can you believe that? Like, let let the weight of that sink in for a second. We get a chance to represent the God of. We've been given the responsibility to represent the God of the universe here on this earth. We get a chance to show God to other people. See, we're God's plan for the world. What's God's plan for the world? Us. It's not a government. It's not the responsibility of some social service organization. God's plan for the world is you and me. We are his plan for the world. Actually, let me make that more, more personal. You are God's plan for the world. We have like this message to share, right? And it's good news. Like it's inherently good news. God didn't give us a message of bad news to share. Sometimes we do it that way. Like This is the message that we share. Repent or you are going to hell. And Jesus wants all your life. It's depressing. That sounds terrible. Right? The message that he's given us, do you know what gospel means? Gospel means good news. Now listen, we believe in hell. We believe that it's real. And that's what drives us to go help people be reconciled. But when we share Christ with people, we share the good news of the gospel that God loves us so much. He knows everything about us, everything. And he loves us more than we can imagine. And he wants to be with us in deep relationship. And he promises to change us from the inside out. And he wants our life, our broken, ugly life. And in exchange, he promises in return to give us an abundant life. And one day we'll be with him in paradise forever, for all of eternity where there will be no more death or mourning or sickness or pain, and never again will a tear fall from our eyes. That sounds like pretty good news, doesn't it? We don't have time to get into it now, but you should check it out sometime. In in one book back, one book to the left, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul kind of talks about how he shares the good news with people. And in a nutshell, this is what he does. He always does it differently depending on who he's talking to. It always looks different when he shares the good news, depending on who he's talking to. And so he says, to the Jew, I am a Jew. I act like a Jew. To the Gentile, I act like a Gentile. To the weak, I become weak. And this is the purpose. I become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save some. That's what we do in sharing the good news. That's Paul's approach to sharing the good news. Because of Christ's love, Paul was reconciled to God and he was changed and he was made new, and he was made different, and he saw people differently, no longer in worldly ways, but he was beginning to see them as Jesus saw them. And because of all that, he was compelled, he was pressured to represent God and be an agent of reconciliation and to help people become reconciled to God. And guess what? We got the exact same job description that he had. I want to challenge you to wrestle with this. And this is key for us as followers of Jesus. We live to make Jesus make sense to anyone who's seeking after him. The church isn't for the church. Jesus could have snatched us at any time, right? Like right after you and I came to know him, he could have taken us to be with him forever. But instead he leaves us here. And it's not primarily for each other. Although we're here for each other and we encourage each other and we love each other. But he left us here for the world to go and help the world be reconciled to him. I want to challenge you, if we're not, and and I'm challenging myself as much as any of you, and this is hard when you're a pastor, it's especially hard. I want to challenge you to go out and befriend and be in people's lives that don't know the Lord. Like We should not be with each other all the time. That's not the church being the church. If we won't step out, and get in the lives of people that don't yet know Jesus, who will? We should feel that responsibility. The truth is, God has put people in your life, relationships in your life right now, that he has plans for you to share himself with. He has plans for you to share the good news about Jesus with that person. What are we doing with that? The YouTube videos, I'll end with this, that I was watching. Again, some of them were pretty, it got pretty depressing because you just see some of them, so much confusion and misunderstanding about Jesus. But one thing made me smile, and it was this girl who uh, I said, you know, who who is Jesus? And she said, basically she said, I don't know, but she said, but for my best friend, Jesus is a factor for her in her life as she makes decisions. And as I listened to that and I watched that, I just smiled because I thought that girl gets it. That girl's friend gets it because she's showing their, her friend who Jesus is by the way that she lives her life and what she does. And guys, that's got to be what we do. We got to be people that step out and take the initiative and get to know people that don't yet know the Lord and love them unconditionally. We're not trying to manipulate anybody. But we believe that God is real and that Jesus loves them And that there's freedom and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. That is good news. And we get a chance to share it. And the last question is, who are you helping make Jesus make sense? Lord, um, we are excited for what you're going to do. And it's so humbling, Father, to think about us as flawed individuals, all of us with baggage of our own, being used by you for your glory. And we'll make mistakes along the way, and we recognize that. But God, we step out in faith and confidence with courage, expecting you to do what you promised to do, and that's grow your church and transform people. And we commit that we will be a part of that, Lord. If you would have us, we will be a part of that. We want to make a difference for you. We don't want to make a name for ourselves. We want to make a name. We want the name of Jesus to be famous here in Barberton. And so God, would you use us? Would you challenge our hearts? Will you motivate us? Will you whisper gently to us about opportunities that you're giving us right here in our lives with people that we already know and ones that we'll come to know? We want to make a difference for you. And God, we desperately need you and we depend on you. So I thank you, God, for tonight. Thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your challenge. We love you. In Christ's name.